Our Father, again, as we come to the Scripture, which is the standard of truth and the absolute uh, criterion of truth, we thank you that the Holy Spirit has so preserved it against all counterclaims, against attempts to destroy it, against attempts to distort it, so that we can have the freedom this evening to come to this text and to depend upon you to illuminate our hearts to that which promotes our faith. We know faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and it doesn't come any other way. We thank you for the salvation that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ, that it doesn't depend upon our works, human merit, or anything additional. It is a complete, finished salvation package in the person of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Tonight, um, I wanted to remind everyone that next Thursday we are going to skip the class and we'll be out of town, so there won't be a class next week. Um, Also, two weeks from tonight, if when you come, instead of handing out notes as such, I'm only going to hand out a page that references the material that we covered in Part 5 on the Trinity and on the God-Man, the hypostatic union, the God-Man... Uh, doctrine of the person of Christ. So if you would um, bring those notes, if you don't have those notes, um, what I'll try to do is create two or three sets if you weren't here for that that part of it. But the two areas we're going to cover next time to finish the foundation era of the church is the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Christ. Because these three areas, the scriptures, the person of God, and the person of Jesus Christ uh, as the God-man, these are the uh, foundational doctrines of the church. And when they are completed, the church's foundation is completed. So we can look at it this way. If this is the founding period of the church for, say, the first 600 years, during that time, the issue of the scripture came up with what is called the canon issue, C-A-N-O-N. And then we have the Trinity, and that is an appendix in the fifth uh, framework series. And then the uh, hypostatic union, which is the doctrine that Jesus Christ is undiminished deity, is true humanity, united one person forever. So that is the cycle of the first 600 years of the church. Now tonight, we're going to go back and revisit uh, this. Um, We're going to the Trinity, like I said, the hypostatic union. We've covered it before. We won't have to spend too much time in that. But I do want to cover that because that is all all basic stuff that the church needed. If in the notes you'll turn to um, um, page 86... Uh, We're talking about two things. Um, uh, On page 86, you'll see the capital, uh, all caps, header, the sense of distinct identity. There's no sense going over that. We've already gone through that, belabored it in the previous chapter. The church coming into its own historic existence, over and distinct from Israel. And then we came to the completion and recognition of the canon. Now, several things that we want to uh, mention. Notice in the title, there's two words here, completion and recognition. No one doubts that the canon was complete in those first centuries. 
bringing them into existence. I mean, no one who's orthodox. Um, the recognition, however, is hotly debated between Protestants and Catholics. And so we want to go through the, the logic of what's going on here in this dispute. Um, on page 86, the subtitle, Apocalyptic Revelation, closes the canon. I mentioned that when the Old Testament canon started closing down, then the kind of literature that was written toward the end of those closing down periods was this apocalyptic literature. Daniel, Ezekiel, that kind of stuff. Zechariah. And in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, written in the same style. And it seems when God is going to move into a period of quietude in history, when he kind of withdraws and we have a silence of God era to come, that just prior to that silence of God era, he puts forward these visionary uh, revelations. We said that page 87, historically interrupted revelation requires the canon because the point is that um, if revelation is historical, we mean it's not constant, it's not immediate, meaning it's not, it's not present in every generation. There's a reason for that. And so because it's interrupted down through time, then there has to be a preservation of that revelation. Now, at the bottom of page 87, I, I quote some, some passages where the scripture talks about itself. And I want to um, mention that, and I want to add also uh, another scripture to that. So if you look down at the bottom, let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Uh, in the Bible, and that's the, one of the passages I'm citing there at the bottom, page 87. There's a distinct uh, um, set of characteristics of what we call inspiration of Scripture. Now, I want to define or review some words. We dealt with these back at Mount Sinai. We dealt with these in the Old Testament. We dealt with these in the life of Christ. But again, we'll go ahead and repeat these three things. There is a word called revelation, not the book of revelation, just the act of revelation. Then there is inspiration. We'll just, let's just deal with those two. Those two are not the same. Revelation can be everything God's done. His handiwork reveals him. Um, what he revealed to the People who lived before the flood reveals him. We don't have all that. Uh, what he revealed during the Old Testament that wasn't written down, we don't have that. Uh, all the words of Jesus, we don't have that. So God revealed himself a lot down through history. So if you think of it as a big circle containing all of the content of things that God has revealed, inspiration refers only to the scripture and refers to a subset of that revealed body of truth. And inspiration means that God produced scripture and he did so by a variety of means, not always by dictation. It is not true that God dictated all of the scriptures. 
Now you can think of some areas where he did speak directly. Garden of Eden. He spoke directly at Mount Sinai. He spoke directly in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, he spoke directly in visions, Isaiah and so on. But other times he didn't. And Luke chapter 1 is an example here of inspiration and revelation, but it's not dictatorial. It's not dictated revelation. Notice in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, notice many have done that. We don't have all those documents. A lot of those slipped away. Many have undertaken to compile an account, not just three other guys, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handled them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So obviously he's writing to a believer, apparently a guy who might have helped and supported Luke in his mission work, might have financed the, the research that went into this, Luke did research. And so inspiration can include dictation. Scripture can be dictated, as it was, for example, to uh, uh, Jeremiah. It can be investigated. So it's an investigation and report. That's the kind of Luke. It could be a letter to a church for counseling. And so there are many different ways and styles of inspiration. And when you read the Bible, you have to be cognizant of the methods that God used to generate that text. When you see some notice like you're looking at here in Luke, uh, like I was saying Sunday, Luke is a fantastically accurate historian. And he is a detail-centered guy. Think about this. Where in the Bible do you have it stated and reported how Mary and Elizabeth fell in their pregnancy? Only one guy tells you that. A doctor. Luke. Now, is it any, any um, surprise that he would be of all the guys? I mean, you expect Peter to do that kind of thing? No, Luke does it because Luke's that kind of a guy. God sovereignly picked out Luke all of his background, so he could do this investigation. Pointed out uh, two Sundays ago, when you read Book of Acts, chapter 21, you, uh, and 22 and 23, and the mob violence scene there, isn't it interesting? He's got a verbatim copy of the Roman army order. Where did Luke get that? He's got the verbatim order that the, the, the commander of the cohort sent to the squad of guys that escorted Paul out to the Mediterranean. Now, somebody had to get some pretty good investigation because these guys wouldn't be just skewing out um, Roman army orders to some Jewish author. It didn't work that way. So Luke had some insights into doing this. Um, Luke is the guy who tells us, every time he mentions a Roman army group, it seems like in the book of Acts, toward the end, he always labels it. So not only does he know what a cohort is, what a centurion is, but he knows who the commander is, and he knows what the cohort does. So where does he get all this from? Because it says here he did a careful investigation. 
So that's one style of generation of the scriptures. Now, if you'll turn to 2 Timothy, one of the, if you don't know this verse, you need to know this verse. Because this is the central New Testament passage on the nature of Scripture. So, if this is new to you, you've never seen this one before, write it down, because this is a key text. 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16. The way to remember it is easy. You know John 3.16? Think of Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. So, let's read it together. Let's look at it. Follow me while I read it in in whatever translation you have, and I'll try it with this translation. All Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be adequate or complete, equipped for only some good works, equipped for every good work. Now, there's some internal logic to verse 16 and 17. You want to watch this. Verse 16 and 17 teach not only the inspiration of Scripture, but these verses teach the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. Now, what do we mean by the sufficiency of Scripture? Well, let's think, put on our thinking hats and let's say, suppose the Scriptures are insufficient. If I say the Scriptures are insufficient for every good work, what Pandora's box does that open? Now we're going to be looking around for some other revelation, right? But if the scriptures are sufficient, if they are sufficient to every good work, do we need any other revelation? No. Do we need dreams, visions, uh, all kinds of prophecy in the sense of, you know, continuing? No. The scriptures are sufficient unto every good work. Now that has become a bone of contention repeatedly in church history. And since we're on this period, this first 600 years, I want to show you how how it got fought out. Now lots of fights in the first 600 years about this one. And in fact, the sufficiency of scripture did not get settled officially, and then it was settled in a big argument that was never resolved in the days of the Reformation. It wasn't until the Catholic Church turned against the Protestant Reformation, held its own independent council called the Council of Trent, that the list of canonical scriptures was defined, and then it was defined incorrectly. So you can't, uh, it's hard to appreciate now as we sit here that this is a centuries long argument that involves. What are the scriptures? So we can say that once we have this set of scriptures, that is sufficient. We don't need anything more than the scripture. So, we'll go on and say, well, isn't it true, though, that verse 16 refers to the Old Testament scriptures and not the New Testament? Does the word scripture refer to the Old Testament and uh, to the Old Testament only or the New Testament. Well, along with 2 Timothy 3.16, also note 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, 
again think of verse 16. It's neat how all these are 3.16 type things. Easy to remember. Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, John 3.16, and now 2 Peter 3.16. Now in 2 Peter 3.16, the reason this passage is important is this shows you that as the New Testament was being written, it was already considered to be Scripture. So let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. See, Peter? Now see, that's a natural observation. Peter's saying, this guy Paul is deep. He is difficult. And he's an apostle. And he's saying Paul's difficult. Now, what's interesting about that remark, before we go any further in the sentence, is to think about the background of these two guys. Here you got Peter, who was with the Lord for years, who knew the Lord, and Paul never once saw the Lord in the flesh. Saw him on the Damascus Road in a vision. Might have been to heaven with him, but he didn't know the Lord like Peter knew the Lord. So it tells you that when he says Paul's hard to understand, is Paul was coming up with some new stuff that Peter had a hard time understanding. Paul had new insights that Peter did not have. And of course, we trace that in the book of Acts. The church age is something new, and Paul is its architect doctrinally. Paul was the guy, the agent, that the Holy Spirit used to lay out the doctrinal basis of the church age. Now, let's continue the sentence. Paul, according to wisdom given him, wrote unto you, as in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort. See, even in Paul's day, you were having people taking his writings out of context, saying that Paul taught this, well, Paul did not teach that, but that's what they say Paul does. As they do, and here's the significant point in this sentence, as they do the rest of what? The scriptures. So here is a clear New Testament reference to the fact that other New Testament writings were already considered scripture. The scripture is a, is a specialized noun that refers in 2 Timothy 3.16 to the Old Testament. And now they are daring to take scripture, scripture, that noun, that term, and apply it to Paul's letters. So here is a clear indication that right in the founding era of the church, we're talking about the generation and recognition of the canon. Here it is. The canon is coming into existence as scripture. Now, we want to now go to the, the battle over the church recognizing the canon. And we have a situation where the Greek Orthodox Church, the Eastern Church, the Jews and the Protestants all agree as to what the Old Testament is. Roman Catholics do not agree with what the Old Testament is. 
And this has raised is a larger argument that has gone on, and this is why I'm talking about it. We're not worried about what the Old Testament is, but I'm going to use that as a teaching tool. We're going to look at the Old Testament definition first. Because obviously the Old Testament forms a chunk of what is called the canon. Now, if we are to agree that the canon is the inspired writings or the inspired word of God, then it follows logically that you've got to have a list of the books that are in the canon. And you're going to have a list of Old Testament books and New Testament books. Now, I have up here tonight a book called the Apocrypha. If you were to go to the bookstore today, tonight, and buy a Roman Catholic Bible, you would have this in it. This wouldn't have to be separate. This is a Protestant uh, printing of the Apocrypha. But you could get, in a Roman Catholic Bible, you would have this in the Old Testament, so toward the end of the Old Testament. whole set of books here. Now, this set of books has certain teachings in it, one of which is prayers for the dead. Another teaching in this book is the doctrine of purgatory. So you have not only these extra writings that were all generated in the second century before Christ, first century before Christ, throughout the time of Jesus, but you have included in these things some historical errors. So now we've got a set of books, and we'll just add these to make this list picture look nice. We've got a few books now that are debated. And the content of these books has some historical errors, have false doctrine, and have some problems here. Now, we said, we earlier said last week, the larger issue that we're dealing with when you deal with this canon thing is obviously what? Standard of authority. Where does authority lie? And the debate is, is the scripture the authority? What do we just say about 2 Timothy 3.16? It is what? Sufficient. The sufficiency of scripture implies that the scripture plus zero is the authority, does it not? If I tell you that the scriptures are sufficient unto every good work, have I not told you that that is sufficient for all doctrine? Is doctrine a good work? Of course it is. So, the sufficiency of scripture means that the scripture and the scripture alone is the authority. That came to be a slogan in the Protestant Reformation, which you will read about in textbooks, uh, sola scriptura. Now, nobody objected to scriptura as the authority. Where the, where the gunpowder ignited and the bomb blew up was to put those little four little letters in front of it. That was the fight. Sola scriptura. Because sola scriptura says what about church traditions? Even if they're true, it doesn't make any difference. They're true, false, or indifferent. The point is, they're irrelevant. Don't need them. If the scripture is sufficient, 
sola scriptura. I need the scriptures plus nothing. Problem, however, comes in, how do I define where the scriptures come from? How do I know what the scriptures say? On page 88, want to follow me through on that page a moment. On the, on the thing where it says the church recognizes. Now, keep in mind, this is not the generation of the canon. Canon didn't take centuries to generate. That was generated right away. What is the problem is whether the church recognized this list and got it right. So that's what the issue is. Very early, the church recognized Old Testament books that the Jewish community thought of as canonical. Now, why is it important to reference what the Jewish community thinks? Why don't we just ignore what the Jewish community thinks and say the church can define itself? What does Romans 3.1 say? What's the function of Israel? They are the custodian of the oracles of God. So you better listen to what the Jewish community says. So that's why we have that word in there. I want you to be sharp and look at the content of these sentences. So you grab the debate. Very early, the church recognized the Old Testament books that the Jewish community thought of as canonical. These are the same books that we Protestants have in our Bibles. No one debates that. Roman Catholic scholars do not debate that. They openly admit that the Jewish canon is as the Protestant Bible. Uh, If I can find the reference, here it is. The New Catholic Encyclopedia says... For the Old Testament, however, Protestants follow the Jewish canon. Protestants follow the Jewish canon, meaning our list of Old Testament books is the same as their list of Old Testament books. Ah, and what does that do to this? It means that the Jewish community never recognized these as authoritative. There's a reason why they didn't. It's actually right in here. If you read the book of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, they get into a big jam, they don't know what to do, and they say, because we have no prophet in our generation, and we don't know what the will of God is, therefore we will do thus and such. So the people who wrote this knew that in their day they had no prophetic line. There were no prophets living which raises an interesting issue. How would they know if they had a prophet or not? Because they had false teachers. So the prophetic line had ended in the Old Testament. So these guys, nice guys, but they knew that they didn't have any prophet, and they knew that without a prophet they couldn't do certain things, and they refrained from doing it. The testimony's right in here. So there's no question that Protestants and Jews agree on the list of Old Testament books. Now, if you continue. These books, while useful in showing cultural and linguistic background of the centuries just prior to New Testament times, contain unorthodox doctrines such as praying for the dead. Eventually, the Council of Carthage in 397 included these extra books. Now, look at the date here. Now, this is why Roman Catholic theologians insist that they're right. 
they reference this Council of Carthage. They say, look, Protestants, in 397, the Council of Carthage included the Apocrypha. The Mother Church was speaking very early to this issue. Included these extra books on this list of Old Testament canonical writings. This list established the Old, collection, Old Testament collection of books today in Roman Catholic Bibles. Protestants later purged these extra books from the Old Testament canon and readopted the ancient Hebrew list of books. But now look at the date. Next paragraph. Interesting. Recognition of the New Testament canon followed a similar path with a slight difference. And by A.D. 366, our present New Testament canon was on the verge of definition. The famous bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius, listed the books which are to be read in the churches and which included all and only those that are recognized today in the Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant churches. So the Council of Carthage did affirm the New Testament list as we have it. So ironically, the argument is over the Old Testament more than it is over the New Testament. But it's not true that it was ambiguous in those centuries. In the... Um, Catholic, uh, let's see if I can get the exact quote here. Okay. The Catholic Church goes back to the councils of Hippo and Carthage under Augustine. Okay? That's around this 397, 400 time frame. And they claim that the church at that point was recognizing this as well as the Jewish Old Testament. Their argument hinges on what Augustine said. Augustine referred to a list of books that were to be read in the church. And when he wrote, he wrote that there were three kinds of books that he was writing about. He says, first, there is the canon of inspired scripture of the Old and New Testaments. Second, are what he calls the ecclesiastical writings, which were read in the church, which were read in the church. This was, was read in the church. But they were not authoritative for defining doctrine. He specifically mentions the Old Testament Apocrypha as in the second category of books that the church circulated. The third classification were books that were circulating but which were not considered orthodox. And those were heterodox and they were condemned. So you got three classes of books. The books that we have in our Bible, the Apocrypha plus some other books, and the third class is the heretical books. Now these are in between. These are in between books. They were kind of useful, and they were used. So then, what happened was, because Augustine talked about it that way, he used the word canon to include category one plus category two. But if you read him, 
When he's talking about this, he makes a distinguishment between category one and category two. He clearly says only category one books can be used for doctrine. Category two books are used for you know, religious entertainment or something. But he unfortunately used C-A-N-O-N to describe both category one and category two. That's why in the Council of Trent, which happened after the Protestant Reformation, many, many, many centuries later, in the Council of Trent, that's when this whole thing was, um, was declared to be, Apocrypha was declared to be canonical. Here in the New Catholic Encyclopedia, it says, according to Catholic doctrine, the proximate criterion of the biblical canon is the infallible decision of the church. I've got to be careful of that one. They're saying that the canon is defined by the infallible church, which places the church in control of the list. But the problem is that the list came into existence and Paul says in Galatians 1, once these books get generated by the Holy Spirit, the whole church must be subservient to those books. So whereas the church, yeah, it's the physical source of the books, but after it's the physical source of the books, it subsumes itself under the authority of those books, just like Israel. There's no difference here between the church and Israel in this area. <coughs> Because wasn't Israel the source of the Old Testament? Yeah. Were Israelites the writers? Yeah. Did the Old Testament come out of Israel? Yeah. But which was authoritative, Israel or the Old Testament? It was the Old Testament. So, so that's, see, this is where we differ. And I'm just bringing this out, and again, not to cause a big religious fight, I just want the Thursday night class got people, folks, to be clear on where we differ here. And here's one of them. According to Catholic doctrine, the proximate criterion of the biblical canon is the infallible decision of the church. We would disagree with that. Moreover, this decision was not given until rather late in the history of the church at the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent definitively settled the matter of the Old Testament canon. The Council of Trent is after Luther and Calvin. It was in response to the Protestants. That's why Catholic Orthodoxy is called Tridentine Catholicism. What do they mean by that term, Tridentine Catholicism? It means Catholicism as it hardened up after the Reformation at the Council of Trent. And if you ever want to read, you really want to read what Roman Catholicism believes, not what some American Catholics, American Catholics aren't good Catholics, but you really want to read what Italian Catholics and the real Catholics believe, not phony American Catholics. If you read the European Catholics, read Trent. And in Trent, it's all let out. It's all there, just as clear as can be. And I'll guarantee you, you could take the Council of Trent writings and go up to the average American Catholic and they wouldn't know what's going on. Any more, frankly, than you could take the Bible and put it up to the average Protestant, they wouldn't know what's going on. Same problem. Nobody reads. So the point here is that there's a breach in a concept of authority. And that's that breach that we believe was settled in the, fu in the fundamental area of the church. Let's turn to um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. It's 
this concept that we're getting at right now, this foundation period of the church, this 600-year period, when all these things were defined, According to Ephesians 2.20, Paul believed the church had already been founded in his day. That the founding activity was already settled. It's finished. Don't have to found it anymore. In Ephesians 2.20, notice what it says. Having been built, past tense, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building is growing present tense. So it was founded past tense. It is now growing present tense. Now, relating it to what we're saying tonight, notice in verse 20, it's the foundation based on whom? Apostles and prophets. What was one of the key functions of an apostle and prophet? What did they do? They were conduits of revelation. They were the writers of Scripture. Remember I said, people here, the Maccabees, knew that they did not have prophets in their time, and therefore they couldn't do certain things, and they put set things aside. They actually buried stuff. And we said, we don't know where, where this stuff goes. We don't know what to do with it. So we're going to bury it until a prophet comes along and tells us what to do. So that's the Jewish mentality. Without a prophet, you don't do anything. So... The revelation and inspiration, Paul says, of for the church happens with the apostles and prophets. And since it's past, you don't need apostles and prophets anymore. Their work is finished with the generation of Scripture. This is another key point, and that's what we get into on page 89 of the notes. The disappearance of certain spiritual gifts... The reason these gifts disappear is because the gifts are finished. Now, you're going to build a house, you pour the foundation, and then you get on with the rest of the building. But to hear sermons Christians, you would think that what you're supposed to do is just keep pouring the foundation every day. But see, that's, that's a misunderstanding. That violates the whole metaphor of a building. Once the foundation is built, it's finished. Now there are other gifts needed to build it up. So this is why on page 89 of my notes, I mentioned, I mentioned this last time, there are three great periods in church history of very concentrated revelation. And in between those periods, frankly, there's centuries of silence where God doesn't reveal anything. And we are in an era of the silence of God. God has not spoken publicly since the time of the apostles and prophets. Why? He doesn't have to. Why doesn't he have to? Because the scriptures are what? Sufficient. What did Jesus say to the people or unbelievers that disbelieved in his day? Well, gee, Jesus, if you would just do a miracle now, they'd believe. You remember what he said? He said, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe that there's a resurrection in front of their face. If people won't believe the sufficient scripture that's already generated, they wouldn't believe if a prophet did come here. 
because they've already had a chance to respond to the Word of God. Well, it would be more real if we had a prophet. No, it wouldn't. Because the response is not to a person. The response is to truth and content. And the truth and the content is in the text of the Word of God. So, when we come to the disappearance of gifts, we understand there were these founding gifts. And if we take a timeline, we don't know exactly when these things... We know from church history they did phase out. The apostles and prophets disappeared very fast. And a lot of the miraculous gifts disappeared. In fact, again, looking at the book of Hebrews, uh, you will look at... um, chapter, let's see, I think it's chapter 2 of Hebrews. Yes, Hebrews chapter 2. Another little verb tense. Another little detail in the text. But a very useful detail in the text. Because in Hebrews chapter 2, it says in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now watch the construction of the next sentence. Observe very carefully. After it was at first spoken through the Lord, first stage of New Testament revelation, Gospels, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. Now, verse 4 is a series of participles that explain and expand the main verb of verse 3. What is the main verb in verse 3 that is expanded by verse 4? It's confirmed. And what tense is the verb confirmed? Past, present, or future? It's past. So isn't this interesting? Apparently, all the gifts all the miracles, all the signs, and all the wonders finished their work by the time the book of Hebrews was written. Because he says it was confirmed to us, past tense, it's over with. Now, that doesn't mean they, they didn't have different areas where they might have continued. But the point is that these gifts are dropping off. There are certain temporary spiritual gifts that are ceasing. There are other gifts that continue down through the church age. The gift of pastor, the gift of teacher, the gift of, uh, of giving, the gift of mercies, and so forth. These continue. But what always happens in church history is that people like to go back and dwell on these things here because it's, quote, more spiritual. I never will forget the wise words of Dr. Ryrie one day in class we're talking about the gift of tongues. Of course, that's the one that in charismatic circles. I always have to go back to the gift of tongues. And he, and his, you have to know Dr. Ryrie to appreciate his personality. His personality is very laid-back kind of guy. And he sat back there one day and he says, Well, fellas, he said, You know, it's, awful. it's interesting to see what kind of gifts people emphasize. Isn't it strange that in all the Holy Spirit revivals you never saw an outbreak of the gift of giving? You see what what he points? Because it commits you to do something. 
Isn't it interesting that the gifts that are always printed about as spiritual gifts don't obligate you to do anything? I mean, gifts of tongue, you just flap your mouth. You don't have to do anything. So, the, the point here is that gifts have a function in the body of Christ. And if you understand the church grows with time, it's founded. And these gifts are very important, by the way. They really are important. In fact, if you turn to 1 Corinthians, that passage, it's a very interesting section right in the middle of it. And I've noticed over the years, all these discussions about tongues and this and that, it always comes up short when, it, when you go to the text here. You know, it says in, verse, in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, it, it talks about in verse 8, 9, and 10. Think of this in the light of Paul talking about the church. Love never fails. That's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, we're not saying that miracles cease. Every time someone believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, what miracle is performed? Regeneration. Illumination. There's all kinds of miracles going on. Just people don't like those miracles. They want something else. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. Or literally in the text, we know bit by bit and we prophesy bit by bit. The idea is that Revelation was still growing in the period in which Corinthians was written. But when the perfect or the complete is come, then the partial will be done away. Now, there's a debate, of course, what perfect is. I tend to believe that the perfect means when the revelation was finished, which would be when the canon was completed, because the word perfect here is a neuter. But nevertheless, notice in verse 11 what follows on. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, and reason as a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. And he's talking about maturity and growth. It's maturity of the church age. Interesting Old Testament forbia. Continuing in 1 Corinthians, look at chapter 14. He's specifically addressed to tongues in the, in the congregation. And then it says, verse 20, Brethren, do not be children uh, like children in your thinking. Yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature. Now what he's saying is, get this. In the law it is written, and now he quotes an Old Testament text. And if you have a study Bible, you'll see in the margin what the chapter is. It's chapter 28 of Isaiah. Men of strange tongues, and by the lips of strangers will I speak to this people, even so they will not listen to me. So then, so Paul is concluding something by referencing an Isianic passage out of the Old Testament. So he's saying that I can tell you about the nature of this gift because in the Old Testament it was prophesied. Now in the verse 21, which cites Isaiah, if you look in the Isaianic text, the men of strange tongues means men of Gentile languages. That is, non-Hebrew languages. Which, by the way, shows you here, he's talking about real languages, not some heavenly stuff. These are real languages. 
He says, men of Gentile languages, I'm going to speak to you. And think of Isaiah. Forget about the church minute. Just go look at verse 21. Think of where that happened. That was in the Old Testament when Israel was going down and God was angry at them for rejecting revelation and so he said, you people won't listen to revelation through your own language, then I am going to speak to you by foreign language. So it's interesting that he says tongues are for a sign not to those who believe but to the unbelievers. For a prophecy is a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. And then he goes on to give early regulations to the, to the tongues thing. All right. Tongues are just one of the thing. And the big idea is not tongues tonight. The big idea is this. That in the Protestant reaction, because Luther and Calvin went back to the text, they insisted on the cessation of certain gifts. Now, they weren't fighting the issue of tongues. They weren't fighting that issue so much as they were fighting two in particular. Why do you suppose they fought that one? Why do you think that the reformers insisted that the apostles and prophets are no longer? because they were simultaneously insisting that the scriptural canon had already been generated and now it, not any continuing line of prophets and apostles, it, the completed canon of scripture, was the authority. See how this fits together? Now, it's interesting, down through history, everybody who's tried to fight with the Bible has always brought apostles and prophets back in some way, shape, or form. Think of Mormonism. What does Mormonism say? Church is restored. You know what the real restored church are the Latter-day Saints? Latter-day meaning the end of the church age. The Latter-day Saints. And what do they mean by Latter-day Saints? They mean that the prophets have come back again, Joseph Smith, and their prophets always do what? They write scripture. What did Joseph Smith write? Book of Mormon. So they are logically consistent. But in order to downgrade the scriptures, Satan always has to at least have some truth. So what he tries to do is get people convinced the prophet has come back so we can get people to follow this prophet's writings which will gradually suppress the Bible and now you just have this new prophetic false text. Islam does the same thing. What is Muhammad called? The prophet. And through Muhammad is supposed to come scripture. And we have the Quran. You see how it works? So the Protestants, alert to that, said no. This was necessary only at the child infancy stage of the church, only at the foundation stage of the church, and you don't need them anymore because of sola scriptura, the sufficiency of scripture. It's absolutely unnecessary. Okay. On page 90, there's a long quote from Sir Robert Anderson. And that quote is a wonderful statement of as these gifts went away, particularly in this case, the gift of miraculous healing, and I gave you the two key verses there, Philemon 2, 
25 to 28, 2 Timothy 4:20, which referenced Paul's own gift of healing had gone away by the time that he wrote those texts, could, couldn't heal people, whereas before he could heal them. So Robert Anderson reflects on that and he says, I know that if in the days of his humiliation this poor crippled child had been brought to his presence, he would have healed it. And I am assured that his power is greater now than when he sojourned upon the earth and that he is still as near to us as he then was. But when I bring to this to a practical test, it fails. Whatever the reason, it does not seem to be true. This poor afflicted child must remain a cripple. I dare not say he cannot heal my child, but it is clear that he will not. And why will he not? How is this mystery to be explained? The plain fact is that with all who believe the Bible, the great difficulty respecting miracles is not their occurrence, but their absence. Now, Anderson, don't get him wrong. He's not criticizing the Bible. Anderson was an Orthodox Christian. What he's getting at is there are periods in Scripture, as well as since Scripture, when God is silent. And I think the way to think of this, I've tried to think of a, of a metaphor to explain why this is probably true. Think of good music. Uh, good music. I don't mean the boom boom stuff. When a kid eight blocks away, you can hear him through the street. Um, I'm talking about good music. Good music always has a crescendo and then quiet. Right? And why do composers do that? Why do they have loud and then they have soft? It's part of the artwork of the music. It's part of God's revelation to have those times when he flashes forth in loud, public revelation and there are times when he's quiet. And we cannot dare say that when he's quiet, he doesn't care. Or when he's quiet, he doesn't have me personally in mind. He's already told us he loves us. He's proven to us that he loves us on the cross. And, you know, if we were to ask him, he'd probably say, did you take a good look at the cross? Did you look at what I did? And you're still saying, I don't love you? You see? So, the silence of God is something we have to deal with. And it's related to this issue. Now, I handed out tonight another handout. And I want you to just take a look at that diagram. That's out of a man who taught for many years at Wheaton College in the history department back in the days when Wheaton was more conservative than it is today. And it's a wonderful diagram that we're going to expand on next time in ensuing times. And it's a diagram that shows authority and the chains of authority. You'll notice the arrows on the left side of the diagram go up. The arrows on the right side of the diagram go down. God is at the top, church is at the bottom, or Western culture at the bottom. Look up on the right side just after G-O-D, after you see God. God reaches down to man by revelation. And on that line down, if you follow it down in the right margin, you will see those segments of church history that emphasize the authority of Scripture the authority of revelation. Now look at the other side, to the left. <laughs> I think there was something symbolic about the right and the left. Man reaches up to God by reason. Up by reason. In other words, man reaches up on his own merit, Torius intellectual powers. On the left side 
of that, you will read everything that Dr. Cairns has placed, which shows you people who have emphasized the authority of reason. So on the left side, you have the authority of reason. On the right side, you have the authority of revelation. And in the middle, you have this mishmash where Roman Catholicism has borrowed both traditions. And we're going to talk about that as we talk about the church maturing. What happened? What was the synthesis? Often called, scholars call that the medieval synthesis. That is, when revelation was synthesized and mixed up with uh, reason. Well, that's the next step in the church history. But right now, sum up what we've said. All this yak-yacking I've been doing about the canon is really over one issue and one issue only. What is the standard of truth? What is the authority structure? Does the authority structure reside in a tradition, in a church? Or does the authority structure reside in the scriptures? And if we don't have, we won't have time tonight to mention this, but I mean, I can mention it, but I want time to go into the text. Think of Jesus during his earthly ministry. What was the chief problem Jesus had authority-wise with the Pharisees? What authority were they quoting over against Jesus? Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Ye have heard it said, but I say unto you. Now when he quoted, ye have heard it said, what was he citing? It wasn't just the Old Testament. It was the Old Testament interpreted by tradition. And in Matthew 15, when they climbed all over Jesus, you violated the traditions. And basically he says, to hell with your traditions. You go back to the Old Testament text. The law says, boom. So if you think about it, every time you take in concordance and look up the word tradition and watch how Jesus uses it, it's always used in a derogatory fashion. In all the debates Jesus gets in, tradition is always derogatorily spoken of. Because Jesus hated tradition? No. He insisted, however, no matter how comfortable you are with it, it does not stand on the level of authority with the scriptures. So in this, then, we are summing up what we're saying is that in the foundational period of the church, God, through the special gifts of apostles and prophets, gave the church this. And this is the authority for the rest of the church age. Now, whether the church recognizes it or not, whether the church follows it or not, that's another issue. But this has been brought into existence. And really, the church, if it were honest, knew that by three or 400 A.D., it knew that these existed. And they really did have it down. And it was only sloppy use of the word canon that got this involved in the mess. Father, we thank you for our time together, and we thank you for your disciplinary work down through the centuries of church history to maintain at least a semblance of orthodoxy, enough truth getting through all the fog and confusion so that we can be saved, enough to at least keep the gospel clear enough that the Holy Spirit can use the message to regenerate, to illuminate, to bring people into the kingdom. And we thank you now in the person of our Savior. Amen. Okay, um, got a few minutes here for a question and answer. So, any?
Yes, George. The, um, uh, the canon, the, the Old Testament canon, did, did the fact um, that the church, I guess, was around what, 200 and so on, 200, 300, with, is it origin or origin? Origin. And the, um, the move away from, it, it's almost like an anti-Semitism. Well, that, that got into it, but actually, you know a strange thing? You know who the two guys that were the most solid on the canon of Scripture in church history? And it was those early centuries, is Origen and Jerome. And you know why? Because both those guys knew the languages. You know, it's a strange fact of church history that Augustine didn't know a word of Hebrew. And I'm not trying to knock Augustine, because Augustine did some wonderful things. He, Augustine provided the framework theologically for a lot of the Reformation. But, the, but Augustine, along with that, had this other strange strain to him in that because he became a Christian in Rome, he developed the doctrine of the exclusivity of Roman Catholicism. Actually, it was Augustine that developed the idea that you cannot be saved outside of the Church of Rome. And it was early on in his theology. And some people think, I'm not an expert in church history, so I just haven't had, you know, you just go into volumes and volumes. But some scholars feel like he reneged that later as he got older and more mature. But in his early years, he was uh, a tyrant about that after he became a Christian. Um, but the guy, the two guys that cleared it out, Jerome was the, was the real scholar. You know who, what Jerome did, anybody in church history? What he was famous for? He was the guy who translated the Bible into Latin. So he was a translator. Well, he knew Hebrew and he knew Greek. And it's significant that Jerome said, the canon is exactly what we got here. Where it got foggy was that these other books did circulate, along with some other New Testament, uh, uh, pseudo-New Testament books, like um, if you go in a library that has this, you'll see this first Clement, uh, Clement's first epistle of the Corinthians, and uh, you'll see some other writings like that. You'll see the Didache, the teaching. Um, and those books, by the way, are used by conservative scholars, not for doctrine, but what you suppose they use them for word studies, background, because they do reflect Greek usage. So they're often used in word studies and to understand how people in the first and second century were interpreting scripture. So that's not, it's not like these books, you know, got, got uh, radiation or something, got to put them in a lead safe. Um, they're, and they're wonderful stories. Um, if you read the Apocrypha, one of the most great uh, historical stories of all time is first and second Maccabees because it gives you how the Jews struggled with Antiochus Epiphanes, who is the um, historic uh, precursor of the Antichrist. I mean, if there's one man in history who's, who in his biography is the picture of the Antichrist, it's Antiochus. And what's so remarkable about the, about the portrayal of Antiochus is that he's a politician. He's not a, big, he's not a nasty guy. He's a good old boy. He wants to get everybody together. And he, in one sense, he had a very gentle streak to him in that he, he, he couldn't stand religious arguments and fights. He just wanted to get everybody together. You know, let's all gooey together. And 
this is this is Antiochus. Finally, however, like all the gooey people, he gets extremely infuriated at those people who have their own standard of truth and won't go along with Antiochus. And so there's a remarkable passage in here in First Corinthians when the Maccabeus, the the, the there's a family. Maccabeus is a word for hammer, and that was the name of the family. And so they, the, the old man got fed up with this stuff that uh, when Antiochus decided he was going to force the Jews to go along with him, he decided the way he'd do it is sacrifice pig, make them sacrifice a pig. And so they tried it, and they came into this little town one day, and um, the old man Maccabeus was there, and he took one look at that, and, and uh, he t- pulled out a sword, and he killed the priest, Antiochus' priest, right in front of everybody. And then he turned around to the crowd and he said, all those who are loyal for the Torah, follow me. We are in revolt. And that's the story of the Maccabean revolt, which is a bloody mess. Yes? Oh, I'm not sure if I uh, misunderstood you or you uh, misspoke, but I thought you said something like when you first were talking about um, the Greek Orthodox and the Jewish and the Protestants, you said... All three of them agreed in the Old Testament. Yes. Actually, the Greek Orthodox has a lot more, not only the Apocrypha, but tons more books added. Right. Right. That's right. The Greek Orthodox Church has those books in it, but they never did what the Catholic Church did in that the Catholic Church, when the Council of Trent declared them as absolute canonical inspired scripture. The Greek Orthodox Church over the centuries has been more careful than that. They, um, they have, you read the Greek theologian, the Greek Orthodox theologians, and most of them argue that these are edifying for the church to be read. But they, they don't go quite that far like Trent did. So they, they never created the big issue that was happened in the West. They kind of kept it cool over there in the East. So it never really became an issue for the Greek Orthodox people. It's true, though, and in practice, you're right. You're absolutely right. They had a lot of stuff, and, uh, not just books, but they got a lot of stuff that's, that's out there. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Greek Orthodox Church... We don't usually speak too much to it because it's not really a, a strong issue here. But, of course, in Baltimore, there's quite a few Greek Orthodox churches. actually quite strong in Baltimore. But they have, they have not tried to... It's been their strength and their weakness. And the Greek Orthodox people have been not so dogmatic as we in the West traditionally have done. I mean, we've had fights over the Trinity. We've had fights over the hypostatic union. We've talked about whether the Holy Spirit comes from the Father or from the Father and the Son and so on. And they tended to stay in the eastern part of the empire and kind of mind their business. Um, But in the course of doing that, um, critically speaking, they haven't had to face the issue and make a decision about it, like in the West. In the West, we've faced these issues and fought over them and made decisions, good or bad, but we've, we've raised them and made fundamental issues. Any other questions? Yes, Debbie. Not to open Pandora's box, but as far as 
And I know you touched on it back at the time of the, the screen that you touched on the Old Testament, about the fact that God seems to preserve his word even even when there was those three forms of the Old Testament, mm -hmm. the differences between them, even though there should have been more differences, they were just very minor differences, um, and not necessarily in meaning or content, just just some minor differences. Mm -hmm. um, there seems to be some issues even today about uh, certain versions of the Bible being Oh, the text types you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. That's a different issue. That, that, that's a different issue. Uh, what Debbie's brought up is, is the de modern debate over the King James only and this and that. Um, that's a textual issue. That is another issue besides the issue of the canon. The canon um, is more uh, establishing that list. The text types deal with, after you get the book, and you look at the text, what does the text say? And it's remarkable that when you study the text, uh, you go through the Dead Sea Scrolls and compare them with the Septuagint and compare that with the Masoretic text and this kind of stuff that goes on. In Jesus' day, the textual variation was far greater than it is today because the Council of Jamnia was one of the Jewish councils, they had to come to a decision about what text type they would set up and face. And that's when they came up with the text, the Masoretic text. And background of that is, is that there were three textual families. There were a lot of little ones, but three main textual families. If you bought a Bible, couldn't though. I mean, if you went to a bookstore in Jesus' day and bought a Bible, you could buy one of three text types. You could buy the Septuagint, which was in Greek, translated from the Hebrew, but done in Alexandria. And the Alexandrian community of Jews are those who fled down there centuries before when what happened? Exile. Remember? 586. So you had a large Jewish community in Egypt. And Egypt, Alexandria, turned into a, the, the intellectual center of the, of the whole Mediterranean area. So history tells us there were 70 Jews. We don't know if that's true, but 70 Jews, that's the Septuagint, that's how the word got started, translated from Hebrew into Greek for the same reason we make English translations today out of Greek, because they wanted, the Jews were forgetting Hebrew. I mean, that wasn't the language of the street. Greek was. So they wanted the Bible in their street language, and that's how the Septuagint got started. So that was one text type. That was before Jesus' time. And it's known because the New Testament cites verses looking like it's coming out of the Septuagint. So we know that in New Testament times they were, they were aware of the Septuagint. Then the second text type is the Masoretic text. That was the Babylonian Jews. That was the one who's probably the most careful, rigid, dogmatic, checked text. That's the one when you look at the text these guys counted, the Masoretics counted every single letter until they get to the halfway point. It's like a, like today in computer data communication, you have a checksum where you take the bits, ones and zeros, and they go through the electronics and stuff. And so each packet has a sum, checksum on it. And it's one of the ways you check to see whether you have integrity of transmission. Well, ironically, it wasn't the computer people who started checksums. It was the Masoretes. The Masoretes didn't have printing, didn't have copy machines. They had to do all this by hand. 
And usually we think how they did it was they took four or five scribes and they sat in a, t in a room and they had one scribe standing here and very slowly he would pronounce the words like this, emphasizing the each vowel. And his enunciation was not the language of Hebrew that you would have heard in the street. It was a specialized version where he emphasized everything. From that, they had a whole other pronunciation system that was created. But the idea was that this guy would get up here and he'd dictate, and this scribe, this scribe, this scribe, this scribe, this scribe is sitting there, and he's saying, uh, you know, um, Elohim bara, uh, Elohim created, God created. So he put Elohim and they'd start writing the text. Well, mistakes can happen. Well, how do you check for the mistakes? Well, the way they checked the mistakes was they started counting the characters. And when they got to a halfway point, they knew they had a sum total. And if they didn't get to the sum total, sorry, Joe, tear it up. And Joe's sitting here after about five days of dictation with papyri. And you, that wasn't, you know, cheap. You didn't go to the, didn't have staples where you could get paper. So here they have papyri roll. And this guy spends three or four days listening to the guy dictating it. And he comes out, ah, oh, I'm five off. And boom. And that's what they did with the Masoretic. But thank God they did that because that was how we preserved a text. So when you hear all these college professors and so on trying to abuse Christian students, um, throw that one up, because every class in literature in college, when they talk about Aristotle, they talk about Plato, they talk about these Greek, nobody ever raises a text problem. You know, they just cite Aristotle. Oh, wait a minute, hold it here. What's the earliest text you got for Aristotle? Well, gee, it's all about 1,000 A.D. Yeah, well, you know what the earliest text of the New Testament is? Within a generation of the apostles. So what's your problem with text types? See, so the point is the Masoretic tradition was very rigid, very thorough. And that was the one that eventually took over. Then, as a result of Dead Sea Scrolls, in the 20th century, they, they infer there's a third text type. And that one is a discovery from Frank Morris Cross at Harvard and others who say, well, wait a minute. The Dead Sea Scrolls don't look exactly like the Septuagint, and they certainly aren't the Masoretic text. Well, where's this coming from? And so, for lack of anything else, they call that the Palestinian text type. So you've got the Egyptian, Palestinian, and Mesopotamian text types. Well, what are these text types? Spelling errors, occasionally you have a word different, that kind of stuff. It's, it's like, um, it's in the noise level of communication. It's not really major issues. But that, Debbie, is different than the canonical issue. In deciding the canon, the text types, I don't believe, ever were an issue. Yes. Um, there's two different versions of the Book of Esther in the Old Testament. You got the Greek and the Hebrew. The Hebrew doesn't mention the Word of God or anything about God whatsoever, but the Greek does. Which do you think is more accurate? I would go with the Masoretic, the Hebrew, simply because that's the way the Jewish people, the Greek one of Esther, is the Septuagintal type tradition again, and what you're getting there is you're getting the linguistic views of Jews who were post-exilic. And the problem is that, yeah, Esther was written post-exilic, but these guys are Egyptians doing this. 
I would prefer to listen to the Masoretes, who, who you know, wrote it in Hebrew and left it there. The reason they had a problem with that, by the way, is because it didn't have the name of God in it. And this became an issue among the Jews about whether Esther was a canonical book or not. They had their arguments prior to the church that we're talking about. They had their arguments. And one of the arguments against the book of Esther is it never mentions God. Well, the fact, see, that they had the argument tells you what text type they were looking at. And it tells you that they were looking at the Hebrew text. That created the argument. Well, we have an answer to that. Again, the, why it was accepted is because God has written all over it. It's the providential working of God. And we can get into the theology of Esther, but it was accepted finally in the Jewish canon. The pro people get uptight about text types. I know it's a big issue today, but we live in such an illiterate age, we're going to be doing good to just get people reading the Bible no matter what the translation is. I mean, the fact they can read is going to be an exciting development. So, so I, I always kind of consider this, you know, it's, it's a neat kind of argument to have in a discussion, but frankly, if you talk to average people, we're missing out on just getting them in the text, period, no matter what the translation is. Anything else? Well, our time's up, and we will not have class next week, but we'll have it a week from And if you would bring the notes on Trinity and the hypostatic union, We'll go over that, and that completes the founding period of the church. And then we're going to go to the Middle Ages, and then we'll go to the modern period. Okay?